Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. No matter who you are or where you live, you depend on water. Often, water access is so reliable and ubiquitous that many of us rarely stop to consider the natural and human-made systems that capture, store, and transport water to where it's needed. But climate change and decades of growing consumption are forcing us to reconsider the ways of the past. Water management and hydrology are huge topics, and I couldn't have found a better guest than Dr. Samuel Sandoval to help us understand it. Sam is an assistant professor and cooperative extension specialist at UC Davis, and is involved in many water management education and outreach efforts. Today, Sam helps us understand landscape-scale water management. We discuss water storage and transport, including natural systems such as snowpack and rivers, and human-made systems such as reservoirs and aqueducts. We also discuss the importance of groundwater and the dramatic subsidence or land sinking caused by overuse of that groundwater. Sam helps us understand why building more reservoirs is disproportionately costly and ineffective and gives us insights into how and where our water is used. Despite our challenges, Sam is an optimist and also provides solutions that we can pursue and helps us bust some water management myths. Water management could easily be a series of podcasts, and in fact, Sam and some colleagues host a podcast called Water Talk, so please check that out. Also, Sam's website, watermanagement.ucdavis.edu, is full of wonderful resources and webinars that anyone wishing to learn more about hydrology will love. This conversation was truly enlightening for me, and I hope it is for you as well. So without further delay, Dr. Samuel Sandoval. Sam, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today because I found you online long ago, but then I actually had a chance to see you speak at the California Naturalist Conference. I guess that was about a month ago. And that was my sign to say, okay, I should talk to you and see if you'd be willing to come on the podcast. So thank you for being here today. No, thanks. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Nature's Archive listeners. It is a pleasure to be here. Before we jump into the topic of hydrology and water management, I want to know a little bit about you and how you came to this area of study and and career, I suppose, even more broadly. Where did you grow up and where did you first become interested in this topic? Born and raised on top of pavement. So I, I was born in Mexico City, La Ciudad de Mexico. Grew up there 26 years of my life. I got interested the last year of my major. I had the opportunity to work on projects that maintain the forest. And with the forest come a lot of springs, uh, rural communities in Mexico that they manage the forest, maintain the springs, and use those springs for two reasons. One was water supply for these rural communities, and the other one was to bottle that water and create an enterprise and then also get jobs, get some funding. So that's how I got into the business of water. Later also, I recognize that water is not only individual issue, it's a, a communal issue, a communal benefit, and I really like about that. I really like that water benefits the greater society. It comes with its trade-offs about who's using water and how, but but yeah, I, I really like it. Then did you find a, a major or a degree program that focused on this in university? Yes, there are graduate schools on hydrology. Civil engineering and environmental sciences, they have typically some tracks or some specializations in water. I think for the audience in here, there is a field that you can work that is called water, hydrology, water sciences, that uh, we really need a lot of professionals. We are having much more problems and jobs that we can actually fill with the people that are we are graduating. So if you're interested in water, if you really want to get your feet wet, if you like rivers, yes, and the ocean, lakes, uh, wetlands, uh, all of those that might be one career that you may want to explore. Yeah, I think that water is one of these things that for many of us, we took for granted if we grew up in a sort of suburban middle-class environment. And it's becoming evident that we can't take it for granted. It actually is a resource that must be managed. And there are implications to how it's managed and also our expectations of it. This is just such a huge topic. Can you help us understand how to think about water on the landscape, water management, and what's a framework to think about this? So most of us have the luxury to always turn in on the tap and water come out of the tap, to open the tap and, and it will be there. That is not the case for everyone and that is not the case in terms of water quality. So how to frame water management? Something that I would like our listeners to think is think of a bank account. So how much money you receive in a month 
how much do you spend and how much is stays on that bank account. It is the same with how much water it rains, how much water we use, and how much water we save or we store. The main difference is that we don't have a regularly monthly income. So rain, it rains depending on where we are. It may rain like in this case in California during the late fall, winter season. In some other parts of the world, it would rain during the monsoon season in summer. But we need water throughout the year. So that mismatch in time, so when it rains or when we have water and when we use it, that is a, that is related with water management. And for that to move water in time, typically we have storages. One of those are reservoirs, snow, soil moisture, aquifers, we're going to talk about it. So that's how we move water in, in time. How we store and water that it was in some parts of the year more plentiful, now we, we move it to parts where we need it. The other part is where it rains and where we need water. That may depend, again, because of the region that you are, in the mountains, all the way to the top as the snow, or it may come in these heavy rainstorms as monsoons or hurricanes bring a lot of precipitation, but we may need that water somewhere else. So then in that case, we develop systems to move that water. Sometimes we use rivers to move water. You may think of a river as a river, but sometimes it's more like a canal. People, the society, we use it as a canal to move water from point A to point B. We also use actually canals. We use aqueducts. We use pipe systems to move water from one place to the other. So what we do in water management is think all of these different, how much water we have available and when, and what are the users, how much water we need, for what, and then how to try to, to match those. If it was individual bank account, it will be easier, but we have plenty of users, and everyone wants to get their fair share of water, and that's where things can get complicated. And also, not only because everyone wants to get a fair share, but there are actually users that do not have a voice or typically do not have a voice. And that one, some of those is nature, rivers. Some other ones is some of the communities that do not have a seat on the table. But yeah, it's managing, it's, it's mixing this, trying to match these two. I like that analogy a lot. So we have a temporal consideration. When does the precipitation fall versus when it's needed? Where does it fall? And you mentioned mountains, mountainous areas. They may collect a lot more rain from forcing and other things. That's not necessarily where all the population or agriculture is. And then... From the bank account analogy, the fact that everyone is sharing the same bank account and some people are locked out of that bank account. So there's a lot of things that you mentioned that we'll dive into. And maybe just before I forget this question, you mentioned aqueducts versus canals. And I admit, I don't know what the difference is. Aqueduct typically is a very lengthy canal or it can be a big pipe, but it's, it's literally moving water from A to B. We have for instance, very designated aqueducts. So we have the some aqueducts that is called the California Aqueduct, so moving water from the Delta all the way to Southern California. We have the Central Arizona Project and moving water from uh, Havasu all the way to Central Arizona in pumps and aqueducts. Canals is typically once water is arriving to irrigation districts, to places where you're going to be distributing water, Typically, you divert the water, so move water into the canal. And then those canals, we have a primary, secondary canal, so the main canal that moves water throughout the different uh, fields, secondary canals, and so on. Is Think of canals like if you have an interstate highway, that will be an aqueduct. And then if you have a local highway, that might be a canal. And then you have the Small streets, secondary canals, third canals. Yep. Good way to think about it. I, I called them all canals before. <laughs> so something that I really wanted to dig into, and, and that's, I guess, partly an intentional pun, is a groundwater and water storage maybe more generally, because there's more than just groundwater when it comes to storage. So in, in thinking about this temporal concern where rain may fall in a season where you don't need it, and it doesn't fall in the season where you do need it, how should we think about the different options and trade-offs for water storage. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? 
Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Michael, this is a great question. There are different storages, and those I don't think we, we, we tend to think that often. So I will start from the headwaters all the way till we end into the ocean, okay? So in the headwaters, typically we have snow. In places with high altitudes, for instance, in California, above 5,000 feet of altitude, typically we may have precipitation in terms of snow, not rain. That water that falls in terms of snow that snowpack, that amount of snow, it is a storage. Think that you have water stored in there like ice cubes that later you're going to melt it and use it. That is the first storage. And that one sad to report that because of climate change, we're losing it. I can show you some satellite pictures of the snowpack and it's been reduced. The second one will be as water gets into the rivers and then it is typically stopped at some point by a reservoir. And a reservoir is a surface water storage. It is really like a big bucket. It is a big bucket where we collect water from rivers. Some of those are used for also for flood protection, but many of those are used for storage. That one, we can manage it. That is a water that you're seeing. Then as water follows its way down into the ocean, typically it passes valley. So think of a valley like a bathtub. A valley is a bathtub filled with sediment. So all that sediment that throughout many, many, many years has been moved into these lowland areas, it has filled. Water that passes through these valleys, typically it infiltrates underneath. So when it infiltrates, it becomes groundwater. It is that simple. The container underneath is an aquifer. So aquifer is the bucket filled with sediment. A surface water reservoir, it is a big bucket that doesn't have sediment. An aquifer is a container in the ground that is filled with sediment. That is another storage. A very important storage that we always underlook is the soil, the soil moisture. So those first three feet, four feet of soil underneath our feet, that is an important amount of storage because think of it as the entire surface area. And that one can hold a lot of water and can help out to grow food and so on. That is a storage that any one of us can help to store water, can, can improve it. So snow, typically we're going to have snow storage. We're going to have surface water storage. We're going to have underground aquifer storage. And we're going to have soil storage. We also have sometimes storage in the air, and that might be through a fog, that water that we cannot capture, but it is there. When I think of snowpack, especially in California, but this probably applies to a lot of the West where substantial amounts of snow can fall in, say, normal years, whatever normal is, maybe looking back 30 or 40 years before the climate change really started to take off, there would be snowpacks consistently into July, as I understand it, substantial snow. In fact, I remember one time going up to Lassen National Park in July, and there was still a drift that was 10 feet tall that they had carved through to let cars pass in July, which was pretty phenomenal. So what I take away from that is the snowpack allows you to, when you get these good years of snowfall, it allows you to spread out the income over a longer period of time back to your bank analogy. And, and now we're starting to miss that. It, we're not getting this, this distribution. What is the impact on storage processes or, or storage management because of that? So Michael, the beauty about snow is that it is opening the tap very gentle. As the year is warming, 
it is just releasing water very gentle and at a rate that we can use, that rate that we can distribute, that we can store. What is happening is that we're having either no rain or we have a lot of rain. And the worst thing to have is have snow and then rain. Because now what is happening is that we have a good snowstorm and then three, four weeks after or a month after, we're going to have a warm rain. So basically, whatever was stored as snow, the rain will melt it. And you will have two storms running in the rivers and gushing into the reservoirs at one time. And then the problem that you have is flood and also that you really have to evacuate water. So all that water that we use back in the day to save it there, now we're just rushing it out trying to save people. That is that is the first thing. The second thing is that this gentle release of water that was very beneficial for agriculture, for cities that were receiving water July, August, September, because of that, still that snow melt. Now that one is gone. And now we are just counting only on water that is on reservoirs, but that time, most of the times, the moisture in the soil is already gone. It is midsummer, and the aquifers we've been overusing it. We'll we'll talk about aquifers, but when aquifers go down, when we use our savings accounts, not our checking, which is the actual one, but the savings for this kind of is cool for rainy days, but in this case will be for no rainy days. When we're using it as, as our checking account, it really hurts us because we don't have the snow. We are gushing water out. We have a small amount in reservoirs and our aquifers, the water in the ground that was there, is no longer there and that, that is hurting us. So the first thought I have is, okay, it's it's more of a boom and bust cycle now. And that means we need more storage so we can take advantage of the boom years and then have this gentle tap release that you know we maybe we would have had otherwise with more snowpack. So now then when you think of water storage and you just ran through the the non-snow ways as well, this is where it gets complicated, I think, because it's really easy to see surface water storage and it's visible. Reservoirs are visible to the public and, and you can tell what it's doing. You can see how full or how empty they are. But I know it's a lot more complicated. So I think this is a good lead in maybe to the trade-offs of surface water storage and groundwater storage. So let me start with surface water. And We went on a reservoir construction haze from 1940 to 1980. Like all the reservoirs that we wanted to build and all the good sites, we did it, folks. Like we really did it. In most of the cases we have, for instance, the Colorado, we can store, I think, four years of average annual flow. So reservoirs can hold up to four times the average annual flow that will pass through the Colorado. You have four times the bucket that it actually runs in a year. California, we have something very similar. We built all the dams. Actually, the dams that are along when the Sierra Nevada enters the Central Valley, we call them the rim dams. All the reservoirs that we could build, we already did it. One of the largest storage that nature provided to us is the aquifers. The Central Valley, so think from Redding to Bakersfield. And for people not in California, what, that's maybe 250 miles or 300 miles, maybe more? At least is 300 miles, 400 miles, and then with maybe 60, 80 miles. All of that area, underneath, we have a big aquifer. We have a big bucket filled with sediment, but still, you can fill it. I think the main reservoirs, surface water reservoirs, they they, they provided their benefit. We have built the ones that we have. I think, uh, Michael, we'll, we'll get back to that, but we are focusing on a narrow part of the of the bank account. What you're asking me, like, hey, we have sometimes a lot of money and then sometimes we need to spend a lot. Can I get a bigger bank account? I think what it is happening is, do we really need to spend that much water? Do we really need to spend that much money? So that's another part. And then the other one is that we still have places where to store water given the, the natural availability. The one other thing that I must say about the surface water reservoirs, we build them 
it takes it, it is sometimes with all our money it may provide benefits to small amount of people but then we need to deal with the uh, restoration with the conservation portion of it and guess who is paying so we pay for it and then we pay for fixing it i and it just becomes a lot so groundwater let's go there we mentioned that groundwater is water in the ground and aquifers is the storage is is this bucket filled with sediment when you take water out of the ground what you're take what you're leaving underneath the ground is empty space when you leave empty space and you have a lot of soil on top of it it starts compacting that compacting of soil is called subsidence so the land starts sinking. And I maybe have an analogy here because I've, I've tried to think about this and how it works. And when I've planted a garden in a raised bed, I fill it with topsoil, bags of topsoil or, or different types of soil and material to create what I want. And it's usually fairly loosely packed in there and it works great. And then the next year I come back and suddenly it's maybe half of the depth that it was before. And it's because all of the little pockets that were in there had settled over time. There was no force to keep it, keep those pockets in place. There was only the force of gravity and, and compaction and animals walking on it and everything else happening to push it down. So that's how I think about it. And how accurate is that? I know there's different forces at work, but how accurate is that when it comes to these bathtub full of deposits? Yeah, I think... The bathtub, to be sincere, is, is very shallow. It's the same as what you were thinking. But here the bathtub can be 1,500 feet. So it is a very, very deep bathtub. And all the soil that is in there, it is really heavy. Water, think of it like it is stretching out arms and legs. And it's just holding all the, all the soil particles. You can actually, you cannot compress water. Water is an incompressible fluid. You try to squeeze it, it will squeeze out, but compress it is not. And that's basically what water does in the ground. It just holds the soil. When you take water out, you leave those empty, empty spaces and the weight on top of that, that area starts to sink and starts to get compact. So is it fair to say from a geology standpoint, because we're extracting this water now and I'm thinking, how did it all get there in the first place? How did it get so deep? How is this sustainable? And I guess before people were extracting it, it would have been a slow and gradual process as slowly over time, the bathtub was filling with sediment that was being kept expanded by the water that was already there. So in many, many of the places, the Central Valley used to be one of the largest wetlands. We used to have a lake there. Uh, the Colorado River was passing and was reaching all the way to, to the Colorado Delta. So we have water going into the ocean. They were holding it. And the water table, so how high was the, the groundwater, it was at the same level as rivers. So the, if you dig a, a hole in the ground and you dig it at the same level as the river, you will find water. Now, let me let me back it up here. Groundwater is exactly the same as the bank account that I mentioned. We have rainfall, precipitation, and rivers. That is the income. That's what is actually putting water into the aquifer, into the ground. So that's the water that is percolating. And also how water moves in the ground, it still follows gravity. We are still on Earth. So that's a good one. It moves down, okay? So it will go down there, and then we have, think of it like a milkshake and a straw. We put a straw, it is a well. And literally, you dig a hole, put a pipe on it, and the pipe has holes. So water will infiltrate through the holes into that pipe. We call it case or casing. Then you put a well pump underneath, and you take water out. So it rains, and the aquifer Groundwater is percolating and the, the aquifer will move up. Take water out in summer and it will go down. And it rains, it will go up and so on. So those are natural cycles. And also, if you didn't take any water from the ground, water will go into the rivers and that, that groundwater will move out into, into the ocean. When we are extracting more water than what is replenished, what is recharging, then we have a problem. Because basically, we are letting that soil never to replenish back with water. So that will start sinking. That will start compacting. We will have land subsidence. 
just to give our listeners an idea, there are parts in Tulare, Kings, some of the south part of the Central Valley, that some years it sinks from a half a foot, so six inches, to one foot per year. So think that your house sinks six inches to 12 inches a year. It's a lot of groundwater. It's really taking much more water of, of what is actually being replenished. There's a famous photograph from the Central Valley of, I'm not sure, I think it was a, a university professor, perhaps. It was a USGS geologist. Yeah, yeah, hopefully that's public domain. If not, I'll link to it regardless. So good news, the photo is public domain, so I have linked to it in the show notes. But to just give a quick description of what it shows, there's a telephone pole or electrical pole along a roadside and a man standing there. And the description that goes along with it is as follows. This photo shows the approximate location of maximum subsidence in the United States, identified by research efforts of Dr. Joseph F. Poland pictured. The site is in the San Joaquin Valley, southwest of Mendota, California. Signs on the pole show approximate altitude of land surface in 1925, 1955, and 1977. The land surface subsided about 9 meters from 1925 to 1977 due to aquifer system compaction. And this the subsidence, the sinking of the land, it's not an even process. So your house may be sunk six inches, but some somewhere down the road, maybe it's sunk 12 inches or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think the main difference between a snowpack and surface water is that we humans, we see it. Groundwater, because it's in the ground, hey, we don't see it. And as long as some people can put a straw, put a well in there and take it out. It is, uh, it's been taken out and put into production. So there's a few things I want to delve into a little bit more about the groundwater. And, and one of them is that fact that out of sight, out of mind, basically for groundwater, yet it's so important for so many things. So when subsidence happens, does the then the overall capacity of the groundwater system reduce? Yes, because you're losing the space to store water. Think of subsidence and seawater intrusion. I will explain it. So those are symptoms of actually a sickness. And the sickness is groundwater overexploitation. So using more groundwater than what is replenished. So if you're in a bathtub and you're standing on top of it and you're taking more water out of what is coming in, it will start sinking. If you are close to the ocean and you take water out, water is moving underground and is reaching the ocean. But it is also prevented that the ocean creeps under the feet and moves underneath your feet. Uh, water from the ocean is heavier. So it can move similarly as, as water from the ground is moving towards the ocean. Water from the ocean can move the other direction. Why is important that water from the ocean doesn't move inland? Because we have wells underneath. There is many of our coastal communities rely on groundwater. And if we are over-exploiting those resources, seawater will intrude and actually they will be out of water supply. So that is that is very important. Those are sicknesses. I assume that's very measurable as well. Like the salinity of the water that's being drawn is, is increasing over time. Yeah. And we have plenty of examples in Los Angeles, Orange County, Pajaro Valley, Monterrey. So there are plenty of places where that is happening. And that is very sad to report because we're using more groundwater than what is replenished. And we have known this for 50 years. This, the land subsidence in the Central Valley, this is, this is nothing new. It's a 1922. It is more than 100 years that we know it. Now, subsidence as a concept is not unique to California. Most of my listeners here are in the United States and Canada, though there are some additional countries beyond that. But we could maybe, for the sake of example, talk a little bit about Eastern U.S., Central U.S., Western U.S., and those situations. I had a guest on the podcast. It's, it's I can't even guess how long ago it was now, but we, talk, we were talking a little bit about the Ogallala Aquifer that runs maybe from South Dakota even. I know Nebraska down to Texas, at least, and how that's being overdrawn as well, and subsidence is an issue there. 
there's not as much infrastructure being affected by subsidence. So I don't know that it's as high on people's minds as, as maybe here in California. Can you talk a little bit about that? You, know, we, you mentioned houses and buildings sinking, but there's an ongoing cost to subsidence as well. Yeah, and that is correct. It really affects because think that you have a canal that used to move water from point A to point B, and then land is, is subsiding or is sinking, and then all of a sudden it's running the other way. So, of course, this is typically for agriculture. So they will ask for subsidies or the Bureau of Reclamation and some other entities will come and say, okay, we need to fix it. With everyone, dollars, taxes, with everyone's money. So we're paying for that one. So people that are extracting water, they are getting the benefit of that water and producing something with that and then making a mess around it. And then we will also have to pay it. It's something similar of what happened with reservoirs. I have to say something. There is There are some good strategies to prevent that, and some of those is groundwater recharge. Now that we're having these uh, boom and bust cycles, something that is happening is we're thinking how to recharge those aquifers. So whenever we have all these heavy storms that are coming in, we are now making sure that ahead of time we are releasing some water from reservoirs that that water, we can put it in canals, that we can put it in fields, that we can infiltrate that water into the ground whenever we have a field that is clean from pesticides and fertilizers. We are also doing the same in what is called recharge ponds. So what is a recharge pond? Think of a swimming pool, but you don't have the concrete underneath. It really is a bare soil, very large. We divert water, put it in there, and just let it infiltrate to recharge the aquifer. We have plenty of those. We have injection wells. We'll come back to the injection wells. I I wanted to ask about the recharge basins or the recharge ponds. I've seen a few municipalities where they've, in partnership with a local water district or something like that, they've built these recharge ponds and they've actually turned it into habitat as well and parkland. And it becomes a multi-use facility that's also functional from a water storage standpoint. And I just thought, like, why isn't everybody doing this? So let me ask you that. Why aren't more places doing this? There must be something. It's more difficult, maybe, than it seems. No, it is. So before we came to the land and did some land use change, most of it, it was wetland. So there are a lot of locations that naturally hold water and also infiltrate water. We changed the land use. Some of those land use changes are now agricultural fields. The cheapest, the most cost-effective strategy to put water from the rivers into the ground is these locations that naturally the river used to flood and then infiltrate water water there. Floodplains and fields that were closer, semi-closer to the rivers that they were recharging aquifers that now are agricultural fields. Why is that cheap? Because you can keep that land in production you don't have to buy the land. It can keep the land in production and you just need the infrastructure to put it in there. Recharge ponds. So when you go buy a property and you will dedicate that property to recharge the aquifers, that is expensive because you have to buy the property and you're going to use it like five times every 10 years. Uh, let's say 10 times every 10 years, once a year, fingers crossed. And the reality is that it is expensive. Injection wells, is the same. They are expensive because you need to have the pond and then the electricity to put it down. Another alternative is to time to coordinate the use of surface water and groundwater. So if you have a lot of surface water, like some years, stop pumping. Don't use groundwater. Save, keep that money on your savings account and use surface water. And when there is not that much surface water, when you have money on your savings account, you have water in the ground, then you can use it. That is the cheapest. And a lot of these things, we have thought about it. Sometimes regulations do not help, but to be sincere, this is mostly individual thinking rather than communal thinking. Something that if there is anything that our listeners should take out of this is that it is not my water, it's our water. Water is a communal benefit, and we have been thinking as private property, and we cannot live without water. We can share water, and with that, it comes how much can I use, when and where, and how can I share it, because it is a shared resource. 
So I think that maybe some of the, the water use practices that exist go back to habit and a time where we didn't have to think about optimizing the water use. So you could just keep pumping um, or you could just use whatever was most convenient at the time. Uh, so you're talking about the next level of optimization. And, and now we're thinking not only using groundwater or surface water, we're also thinking to use recycled water or treated water for uh, agriculture or for cities, rainwater harvest. So if it rains, you put it in a water barrel and later you use it. Great water use from our dishwasher and our washing machines into the garden. We're thinking desalinated water. The radical idea to think of water as water. So regardless whether it is, we can use it. We, we have to manage it. When you're talking about recharging along floodplains, I'm also thinking about some of the programs that exist to flood like rice fields in the Central Valley. Is that one and the same? Is that what they're attempting to do in addition to supporting wildlife? Some of these recharge areas are, yes, they are in these different locations. Rice fields, they actually do not recharge the aquifer. It really is made underneath with clay and the clay doesn't allow the filtration. Actually, we use to flood rice because we want to prevent the weeds to grow in the rice. So you throw the seeds and the weeds don't like to be underwater. So that the only one that wants to be underwater is the rice. So that's why we flood it. They provide good habitat. Similar to what you were saying, other locations where we have this temporary flood of uh, land, two weeks, three weeks, that is what I call a, a, a parking space for all the migration birds. So all the birds are coming, they see some water, they are going to get a nice rest. So that's what they are good for. There's so many topics. I'm already thinking like, oh, maybe I'm going to have to politely ask you for a second appearance on the podcast at some point. But we haven't touched too much on environmental impacts and frameworks for managing the needs of the environment and the needs of people and also, I guess, the needs of the systems themselves. And I can see this getting really complicated really fast. Are there guidelines or frameworks for water managers to think about when it comes to how they move the water around? So there are guidelines and think of that every state is a nation. So every state defines how water will be managed for the environment. In California, the highest priority is water quality. So we shall not pollute water surface water, groundwater, any water, and also that the benefits of the public come first and the benefits of the individuals. And that is called public trust doctrine. What that means is that the environment, so when I talked about the environment here, I'm talking about rivers flowing and what lives in the river and along the river. So that what you're seeing, the picture that you have of watching a river flowing that environment around the river and in the river, that is protected first than water for other individual users. I think that the environment is not an user. The environment is the provider of water. All the water that you can think of it comes from the environment. We can trace it back to the environment. Think, or I would like to encourage our listeners that they think that they are the breadwinner of their home. Might not be, or might be, or partially, but let's just think that you're the breadwinner of, of your household. What would happen if you bring all the money, put it on the table, and you're mute, you cannot speak? Everyone takes 90 or 95% of the money that you bring, and you left to live with 5% or with 1%, or actually you're left with no money for living. How would you feel it? That, that is exactly what is happening with the environment. And I think that in some parts we are trying to backpedaling. Why is good water for the environment? It recharges aquifers. It provides good water quality. It provides recreation. We can use it. Actually, it's not that all the water has to be for the environment. We can have a healthy environment and a thriving economy and a thriving agriculture. I don't think those two things are separate. I would strongly encourage our listeners also to go to a farm. I And if you can try to go to a family-oriented, a small farm, and the one that have more diversified crops, and also try to go to a conventional large industrial farm. 
and you're going to see the difference of how sustainable agricultural practices and unsustainable are compared with the environment and how things can work in conjunction with the environment. So the framework is set by each state. I think our philosophy, how we are thinking of the environment has also changed through time. And this is not an either or. We can have a thriving agriculture and we can have a thriving environment. I think the main issue there is how big and for what. I'm intrigued and I'm curious, given that we don't have a ton of time, but what ideas do you have to find a better balance to have thriving agriculture, thriving environment, and enough water for individuals? When you're thinking about, once again, the bank account, we have to adapt to how much you're receiving on your monthly income, right? Or your yearly income. That is to me for starters. If you're thinking of overspending or spending more than what you naturally have, if you're thinking to overspend money more than what you're receiving, your friends will tell you like, hey, come on, Michael, that's not a good idea. So that is very basic. Agreeing on that, then yes, folks, we are here. And actually cities don't use that much water. We can save water, yes, and all of us were part of the solution. But water for humans, we can make it. Water for industry and agriculture will have to adjust. And that one, it will come like, well, let's bring more water. No, 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 no. Rather than, it's like, hey, the problem is not spending. You just need to get another job. You get a second job. Oh, no, now you need to get a third job. It's like, really? Is, is, is that it? Or is it actually that I need to start figuring out how much I can spend? The strategies we mentioned, conjunctive use of surface water, groundwater, recycled water, desalinated water, irrigation efficiencies, water savings on the inland. I'll talk a little bit later, but the place where we use more water is actually three times a day in our plates. Folks, that is where we're actually using the most water. And, and I think that is important. So what are we choosing? How, how we're using water? We can have desalinated water. We, we can have a lot of strategies around it. And managing reservoirs different, putting water in the ground. We have all the strategies. I think the also take-home message here, Michael, is that there is no one single solution. We need to do a lot of solutions and we need to think differently to actually how much water do I really have in here and how can I adjust for the water that we have here? It's human nature to want the silver bullet, the single solution. And it's so easy to say, build more reservoirs. And I think you've made it pretty clear that would not solve the problem. I appreciate you walking through the different reasons why that is not a solution by itself. Yeah, reservoirs don't make water. Reservoirs are not water factories. If it doesn't rain, we're just going to have it empty. Well, and one thing that we haven't even really talked about, maybe just spend a couple of brief minutes on this, all of the infrastructure necessary to connect these different water systems. You talked about aqueducts and canals, but I think it's even more complicated than that because we're, we're bringing water from say the Eastern side of the Sierra Nevada over up another mountain chain on the western side of the Central Valley. And that doesn't happen by gravity. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the infrastructure in place that makes this, these mass movements of water possible? Let me put you an, an ex, two extreme examples. So Southern California, Los Angeles, brings water from Wyoming. Just think about it, like Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, that water goes into uh, Lake Powell, Lake Meath. So Glen Canyon and Hoover Dam, then it will go to Lake Havasu, following down the stream. Then we have big pumps that actually pump water and move water from the Colorado towards the Los Angeles. It's a lot of energy. The same, the California Aqueduct. Water that falls in Lassen, Modoc, as we started, will run through the Pitt River into the Sacramento River. Shasta will go all the way down to the Delta, then into pumps, then into the California Aqueduct, moving south. Sometimes he's parking San Luis Reservoir, sometimes he's moved back. Goes a lot of pumps in the Tehachapis, and then you, of you go down. We are using a lot of energy in a time where we know that the energy, we get hooked to the energy and fossil fuels, and oh my God, we really need to start reducing the energy consumption. And So what I'm trying to tell you here is that we have systems that we are borrowing 
water from other places. It's it's not that we haven't think it. Hey, let's bring water from the Missouri. We, we have even thought think bringing water from Alaska. Like seriously, I've seen plans. But it is this mindset that the problem is not me spending the credit card. The problem is not myself spending money. It's where can I get the money? The problem is not spending the water. Where can I get the water? And getting the water, what what would you think if I actually take the water from your house or from our listener's house? You will be like, hey, some, what are you doing? Like you're taking water out of my place. And that's something that we need to change the mindset. Yeah, I guess that actually literally happens when it comes to groundwater extraction as well. And, and I think this really hits on, there's so many second and third and fourth order impacts of moving water around and managing water. And there's costs to all of those. You have to maintain the infrastructure. In some cases, subsidence is breaking that same infrastructure, <laughs> as you pointed out before. And this critical infrastructure that has to be protected as well. So there's there's all this overhead that goes along with it. And there are some other infrastructure that is natural that we are rethinking it. There are a lot of nature-based solutions that we are rethinking that we are now looking at that Native American communities, that people living on the land, they knew it. And we're just rethinking of it. That it is very sad because these folks have been here for a longer time. We know some of the solutions. And I think rather than putting concrete and pipelines, there are ways to think this better. Native communities, when they are thinking of a given policy or a given way of thinking, they think three to six generations ahead. I would really like that us when we're thinking like, hey, let's just borrow water from Wyoming. How will that look for six or three generations ahead for people in Wyoming and in California? Mm -hmm. Yep. Long-term thinking, something that we sorely lack. (laughs) So why don't we move along to myth busting? And yeah, I know you're excited (laughs) for this topic. So what are some of the biggest myths or inaccuracies that you would like to help correct here today when it comes to water management and hydrology? Oof, there are there are many. I think the largest myth is that we are never going to run out of water. So that is a yes and a no. We don't have enough water for all the uses that in 2022, the West of the United States wants. And our reference point is today. For the amount of things that we have today, folks, we don't have that much water. That is a fact. The next one will be like, hey, let's desalinate water. It's not economically possible, and we're going to pollute quite a lot the the ocean. That is the second one. The third one is, oh, you're driving agriculture out of the West. No, 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 no. Agriculture will still be here. If all our listeners and the two of us, Mike, if we had breakfast today, we value agriculture. Food comes from agriculture, period. It can be processed food. It can be natural food, but it comes from there. We value agriculture. I think the main issue is the type and the size of agriculture. The type, we have some types that are not environmentally conscious, that are not socially conscious. And with that agriculture, to be sincere, I this is Sam Sandoval as a person, not as a professor. I don't align with those. I don't align with, with agriculture that overextract water from the ground, that put pesticides, fertilizers, that doesn't pay good labor. That one, I, I am not well aligned. The agriculture that actually grows food, that takes care of the soil, of the water, of the air, that one I'm, I'm well aligned with it. That one that, that pays good salaries. And that agriculture is under threat. So that one, I'll be there. I'll defend it. And you know why? Because I really like food. I, I'm not sure about you, but I really like food. I, I, I really like a, a good apple. I was putting here, I have a mandarin that I, I'm just a good eater. I'm going to quote you on that. That'll be the title of this episode, Sam Sandoval, Good Eater. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is that we're not going to run out of water, but for the size that some people want us to think that we need to have right now, no, that's that's we don't have that much water. So let's go to the next one. I think that listeners are going to be interested on what you just said and a comment you made a little bit ago that so much of our water use comes off of our plate. Can you drill a little bit deeper into that? Like what are some of the high water use foods that maybe we should be a little bit more socially conscious about? 
Transportation, we think of it as one of the most climate change drivers of it, agriculture. Agriculture is it, and animal agriculture is it. I know that everyone, no, don't go towards my meat. Okay, it is the same, not at the same rate and not at the same type of the amount that we are eating. I declare myself, I'm a healthy omnivore, so I eat all the type of meat and vegetables and so on. I'm a healthy omnivore. Think of your grandparents. They didn't eat as much meat as we're eating right now. Let me be painfully clear. We're producing food. We're producing alfalfa and some of the forages. We're irrigating grass that will go into some of the cows, chickens, pork, corn that we're producing for them that later we're going to be eating. And a lot of that is is just using a lot of resources and also not only soil, water, air, polluting some of those. Those of you who are meat eaters, I am, go to a, a, a dairy and see how milk is produced. Go to to some of the cattle productions and, and see what is the difference between conventional meat and natural meat. Really, I strongly encourage you because you're going to be surprised that in some of these places, nothing happens naturally. And you'll be surprised. And this is what I'm trying to tell you is that that's, that's one of the issues that we need to see when we are having food in, in front of us. Now, let me be clear. So when you enter a grocery store, talking about food, that's where we go and get our food, right? And some of us, I'll talk about some other places that we can get food. But you go to a grocery store and you see the area of the different parts of the store. So we have the produce, we have all the cookies, the sodas, the dairy products, and so on. That is where actually also our water is going. Those products that are there, it didn't come by because of the hand of God. We really had to put water on it, like really. What is the diet that we are deciding is how we're putting the land in production and the water that we're using. In California, we produce a lot of food, a lot of lettuce, a lot of greens. That is the produce department that you're seeing there. Most of it, not all of it, but 50, 60% of it. Okay? We have the Midwest growing uh, three types of crops, corn, sorghum, soybeans, uh, alfalfa, for the processed food. It's not that we don't have water. It's not that we don't have land to, to grow food. We, we do have it, folks. Like We really have it how we are deciding us as a consumers to go into a store, buy stuff, and that sends send a signal, yeah, we really need to be producing all these things. And with that, our health. How, how can you think water is important? Every morning, when you look into the mirror, 70%, 75% of what you're seeing in the mirror is water. And three times a day, you're putting things on your mouth, you're putting the environment, the water, the labor, the soil, the pesticides, the fertilizers, the organics that is passing through your body. That is how we're using the most water. 80% of our water consumption daily, it's in the three times that we sit in front of it, on, on our plates. And with that, it, it comes also our health. One last thing here. So we are thinking about where to get our food. So we can get it from regular grocery stores, and that will be mostly uh, industrial agriculture, except when you're in the organic. And with that comes the problem with non-environmental, non-socially responsible companies, cough, cough. Then we can go to a farmer's market or to um, a fruit stand. And that typically is local. Yes, I know. It is more money. It's either right now or later that you're going to pay it on the health. One other thing that I, I really want to mention, and this is the justice part, is not all the people can afford it. And that really sucks. Think that the invisibles, so the people that grow our food, the farm workers, they sometimes don't have a good salary to afford the food that they are growing. It is impressive. And that one, so where we're putting the subsidies to these three large crops that we're putting subsidies. Folks, we are producing corn to make biofuels that you're putting in your cars. We're subsidizing these folks to, to put it in there to, to produce uh, fossil fuels. Ay, 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 that really hurts. Where we have other people that are growing food that they don't have access to food. So 
next time that you go to a grocery stores or next time that you're thinking where to buy stuff, think of this, think who do you want to put your money for? How do you want to send the signal? Because on the other side, folks, we are seeing it. I, I am seeing how market is changing. Land use is changing based on that. It brings to mind this simple model that I think anyone taking an ecology class has seen, and that's trophic levels. And starting with plants and, and moving your way up through consumers and only 10% of the energy is transferring between each level. So you're when you're eating meat, you've already lost a lot of energy <laughs> just in that process. Okay. I want to make sure we hit another couple of, of myths before we run out of time. So what's next on your list of myth busters? So another one is we will never run out of water. We can desalinate all the water that we want. Again, it is not economically feasible, not for agriculture, which is the large one. We do desalination for cities. We can pay it in our water bill uh, monthly. It pollutes a lot. It, it really, the byproduct is brine, which is a salty mud that typically we put under the carpet. We throw it back into the ocean and put it in the ground. And it is very energy intensive. So that one, yeah, let's don't do that. Okay, so we talked about it. Do we need more reservoirs? No. No, no. And actually, we're in the process of taking reservoirs out. Can I paraphrase a little bit of that? So you mentioned that there's already approximately four times the annual average capacity of a river in terms of reservoirs, and that we've picked basically the best sites already. So it's diminishing returns at best. Is that roughly accurate? That is very accurate. How about one more? Let's do two more. Environmentalists are driving out agriculture of a given region. I think that is not true. The same agriculture is driving themselves out. And again, not all the farmers, the greedy, sometimes corporates, large agriculture, large industrial agriculture, they are driving themselves out. They went to this land, overuse water, overuse soil, and then we are seeing the consequence. And as an environmentalist, we're raising our hand and saying, hey, they are extracting more water than they were supposed to. We, we are sinking. These folks, they are already driving out themselves. But they are blaming the environmentalists like, oh, no, you're, you're driving us out. No, 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 no. I mean, we didn't put or force you to take this much water out of a well. Like, really, we didn't. Like, I'm, I never have a phone call and say, Farmer A, can you please take way much more water than he's supposed to? No, we didn't. We really didn't. They are driving themselves out. We are calling them out. And I think we are at a point where, where we have to do it. Otherwise, that will not come back. Oh, okay. So another one. Environmentalists care more of a fish than a farm or than people. That is not true. So pretty much we have bioindicators. So we have species that are a good indicator of the health of an ecosystem. Michael, you mentioned one, beavers. We can have amphibians, frogs. We can have fish. Why they are good bioindicators? Because basically if they are there, the water is clean, the riparian vegetation is, is fine, it's, it's okay, they have enough wood to actually put the beaver dams, there is enough food to actually day for day to live, the seasonal cycles are there so they can actually do all their life stages, those are good. What we care about is the health of the ecosystem. We're not putting a beaver, a fish, an amphibian, a frog ahead of the life of people. No, we, we don't do that. What we're just saying, hey, look, this, which is a key species, is about to go extinct, and the 30 or 40 that are behind it are just going straight into the same because the degradation has happened. What we're saying is like, hey, look, this, this is happening. We're just seeing that the environment is degraded. And, and I think it's a good policy to have the environment and the economy having in a tribe. Again, it is not the, the type of uses that we have. It's the amount, is it, how we are using water. Because I think all of us, we have to deal with it. It's, it's just how much. Yeah, it, this all ties together as well. When, when we think about, there's the indicator species that's often latched onto as a representative of what balance looks like. And people who are used to using water one way that maybe haven't really thought about sustainability in that way. It takes some time. It takes time, even if they're open to it in the first place, to understand that what they're doing today, back to the three to six generations concept, 
even if we did what they wanted to do, that would not be sustainable three to six generations down the road. Michael, so let's end it up in the good spirit. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I hope that none of our listeners are being depressed about it. I think there is a lot of hope. There are solutions, and we know it. And there are plenty of solutions. There is people that we dedicate our life to find those solutions. The solutions are there. Do we have the societal willingness? So we as a society said, like, hey, you know, actually we value this. We, we value our environment. We value our Indian communities. We value our invisibles, our farm workers. Do we value them and do we want to improve them? And that, so that is the first thing, the changing in the mindset. The second thing is that there is no single solution. We will have to do conjunctive use of surface water, groundwater, recycled water, aquifer recharge, optimize reservoirs operations, use better the soil and do cover crops, improve irrigation efficiencies, torture the plants, deficit irrigation, and save water in the house, save water in our landscape. And we can do a lot of those. And there is no single solution. We have to do a lot. All of us, we are part of the problem. All of us were part of the solution. In terms of, if it was only the problem of agriculture, it is very convenient because it is out of our shoulders. We have part of the problems. Again, every time that we are turning on and off the faucet, every time that we're sitting on the table, every time that we are thinking of how to call our representatives to say, hey, here is a species that is about to go extinct, but we have four behind it that they are coming into extinction. Every time that we're seeing like, hey, this industry is polluting our air, polluting our soil, but we have other industries, other farmers that I'm actually going and buying produce for them because I really want those type, that type of agriculture to, to be sustainable. We are part of the solution. It is exactly the same as climate change. This is not an individual. Yes, we need to ask politicians to be more upfront of it, but also us, we have a good impact. And that one, I think, is, is one difficult reality for everyone to grasp, that it is a communal solution, and we, it needs all of us. I think that's well said. Okay, thank you so much for spending a few extra minutes with me today. We're at that time where we do need to wrap up. So one question I love to ask is, what has nature taught you about living life? I think nature and also mom and dad, my parents, treat everyone, treat each other as you want to be treated. So if we treat well mother nature, nature will treat us well. If we treat well other people, you will be treated well. I think that's the key message. Nature is very forgiving. I've seen rivers that had really broke my heart, that I've seen them, that they are polluted. You may think that there is no solution. And you start coming back and doing one thing at a time and restoring. And it's very forgiving. They come back to life. So I think that we should treat nature as we want to be treated. Always good advice. So looking ahead, do you have any upcoming projects, speaking engagements that you want to highlight? Yes, so we have, this is a crossover uh, with two other colleagues, uh, Malika Noko and Faith Kearns. We have the Water Talk podcast. Please listen that one to us. We bring different perspectives into the water world. I have a couple of projects that I'm really interested. One is we have the human right to water in California, and also we are thinking on the human right to sanitation. We have one million people in California that doesn't have access to clean, safe, affordable water. So think that you're turning on the tap and water comes black or it comes with fertilizers and pesticides. That's not fun. We have 1 million people in California with those, even with arsenic. We are focusing on bringing clean, safe, affordable drinking water and also how to take that water out because otherwise then you're going to have health problems. Is there a website or anywhere I can point listeners to to learn more about those initiatives? The Water Talk podcast is watertalkpodcast.com. Human right to sanitation. We still don't have a website for that. The one last one, I am collaborating with the Water Education for Latino Leaders. So this is a program that helps, that provides elected officials knowledge about water. And we don't teach them that much about water, but we teach them how to learn 
And that is good. Teach your politicians how to learn, how to get information, accurate information, and make decisions. That is important. And that is, I think, is latinosforwater.org, their website. I also would like to mention before I end that uh, Michael and the listeners, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for giving a voice to something typically doesn't have a voice, which is the environment. We are as good as we are protecting our environment. Michael, our listeners, myself, we are part of the environment. I know we live in our homes and our cities, but we are part of the environment and we define how we want our environment to be. And for that stewardship, I'm really thankful. That reminder is so important too, because we feel very disconnected from the environment in today's society. And that's a recent thing in human development to be as disconnected from the environment as we are. So we have to keep reminding ourselves of this connection. All right, Sam, thank you so much for all the time you spent. I, I really appreciate you and the work that you do. And where can people follow? Like you mentioned the Water Talk podcast, but where else can people go to get more resources to follow your work? We have a watermanagement.ucdavis.edu. So that is our lab website. There is also another website that is related with environmental flows in California, and it's called eflows.ucdavis.edu. And those will be the two things. I'm very accessible through uh, email, samsandoval at ucdavis.edu. I'm really happy, really happy to, to help everyone out. We can do a better work. We can improve our work. And you have some great links to webinars with visuals too on the water management website. So I'll make sure these are all linked in the show notes. So with that, thank you so much again. This was really enlightening and I look forward to sharing this with my listeners. I think that everyone's gonna get a lot out of this. So thank you again. Thank you, everyone. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. Before wrapping up, thank you to Emily Smith for help with editing this week. Thank you to the Patreon patrons for your continued support and everyone who has left ratings and reviews of the podcast. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work, so please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.